all about, and certainly that's it. About now, here we go. Well, thank you again, Sherida, for blessing us. Thank you so much. What a beautiful song. Let's pray together, if you would, please. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that, as the song says, that love came for us. And not just an ambiguous, out there kind of love, but the very love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that love has a name, a purpose. We thank you, Lord, that we are the object of that love. Lord, this morning, as we consider the fact that the Lord came to us, May it be overwhelming in our minds and our hearts. And may it change us, we pray in Jesus' name. When I was a kid at my home church, and we would be dismissed or we would go to our children's church, kind of like our kids were earlier, we'd sing a lot of different songs. And some of you may be familiar with some of the, the songs that we did. We we did one that I distinctly remember. Uh, it, it was, uh, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And then everybody would scream, Where? down in my heart, you know, and all the kids would just, they would love to scream, you know, as, as loud as you can, of course, that was, get you all fired up, and, and so you just, you know, joy, 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 down in my heart, down in my heart to stay, and and it, it was, we loved that song, and, and I still remember it, I won't sing it for you because I don't want to ruin it, but, uh, but I've got the joy, it is the joy of the Lord down in my heart to stay. And as kids, we sang that. It was such a happy song, and we'd, we'd get loud, and we'd move around, and we'd have lots of fun at Children's Church, and we'd sing about the joy of the Lord that we have down in our hearts to stay. But what, what is joy? It's one of those Bible words that we throw around a lot. It's a churchy term. That sometimes we don't really know what it means, and we're not sure exactly what we should do with it, or should we have it, or should I give it away, or should I treat it like a hot potato and not really do much with it? What should we do with it? What is it? The best way that I that I can describe joy is that it's it's a deep state of contentment and happiness that's developed by the Holy Spirit that cannot be changed by anyone or anything. It, it's not just a feeling. Joy is not just a feeling. It's a state of being. It's a state of being joyous that is developed by the Holy Spirit. It, it's it's a state of contentment of happiness that no one and nothing can change. And that, to me, is the idea of biblical joy. It's not just a feeling, though it includes feelings. It's not just a, a, a realm in which we live. It is our very state of being. We are to be joyous people. It certainly is expressed outwardly, but it's not contrived. And it's not manufactured. You know, some people are just faking it in life. You ever know those people? They're not They're not in here, of course. They go to other churches. But, but, but some people are faking it. They fake their joy. And, and they, they just lather it on so thick. Oh, I'm doing so great. It was such a joyous week at Thanksgiving with all my family that I don't, I don't really like. And they were so wonderful. And, and so, you know, that's, they just, sometimes we fake it. But joy is a state of being that has outward expression, but it's not faked. It's not contrived. It's not a front. It's not an act. It's a deep state of being. And I think sometimes, though, our, our view of Christianity is far from having that joy, 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 joy down in our hearts to stay. In fact, from my own experience and from what I've observed in other people, sometimes our view of Christianity, and I mean our view, those of us who consider ourselves believers in Jesus, our view of Christianity sometimes is that of it being boring or sad 
or stoic or just always serious or oppressive or otherwise demoralizing and unappealing. Sometimes the worst people that could be billboards for Christianity that I've ever met are Christians who've been Christians a long, long time. And they believe that Christianity ought to just make you serious. It's sort of sad and somber quite a bit, reflective and introspective and stoic almost. But then I see my friends up here in the front row who like to move around a little bit. That's why I like sitting next to these guys because they haven't yet figured out that Christianity is supposed to be sad and boring and somber and unappealing. They haven't figured that out yet. You guys look at me. Don't ever figure that out. Y'all keep moving. You keep enjoying being here with us and celebrating the Lord. And I'm going to sit right next to you as long as I can do it. There's a Puritan Reformed Seminary professor. His name is David Murray. And he he wrote a book called 100 Days of Happiness. And he expresses Christian joy, the word happiness, over and over and over and over again. And he wrote about the, the fact that some Christians are suspicious of joy and happiness. We're not sure about those kinds of things. Those are for health and wealth. Those are for the folks who don't truly understand Christianity the way that I do, that it's going to be boring and sad. They don't truly understand it that way. He wrote about this. Here's what he said. Reasons that Christians are suspicious of joy. Number one, it's been idolized. The people have have so idolized happiness that we don't want anything to do with it. Well, that's an idol. We don't want anything to do with it. Number two, it's usually associated with things that are superficial and artificial. They don't last. So I'm not going to be happy because those things don't last. Number three, it's, it's so difficult to get. Happiness, he says, often seems to fall into the unattainable category, especially as we get older. So what's the point in trying so hard for something that very few seem to achieve? So, ah, what's the point? I'm going to give up. Number four, he says, it's so difficult to keep. He says, even when happiness is grasped, it sometimes so quickly slips out of our fingers that we think, what's the point in it all? All that effort for something so fragile. A fifth reason, he says, that we are suspicious of joy or happiness is that we fear it. I'm happy. Oh, no, something terrible must be around the corner. So I better not be happy because then something bad is going to happen. So I'll just stay really kind of sad and stoic all the time. Number six, he says, we're extremists. When something like happiness has been so abused, we don't want to be associated with it. We might even run to the opposite extreme and make a virtue of being somber and sad. Number seven, he says, negativity is easier. You ever notice that in life? It's easier to be negative. You're an oddball if you're happy. I mean, let's just be honest. You're a weirdo. If you're happy this morning, you're really weird. We ain't sure about you. You showed up. You didn't get nothing that's hurting. Nothing went wrong this week. And, in fact, things did go wrong, and you're still happy. You're really weird. Something's off with you. We ain't sure about you. Negativity is just easier. Number eight, we have a wrong view of the world. Even though this world is fallen and fading, the Christians, he says, should be able to see more beauty and wisdom in it than the non-Christian. Number nine, he says, we have a wrong view of the Christian life. Although the Christian life is a life of sorrowing over sin, that's not the full story. We are to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We are to rejoice in the Lord always. We're not to replace our sorrow with joy, but rather join join both together in balanced harmony. And number 10, he says, we have a wrong view of God. If we think that happiness is suspect, our view of God is suspect. To put it another way, our essential and primary view of God will be our essential and primary emotion. If we think of God only as a stern, judgmental, angry, suspicious, reluctant, unfriendly, cold, and distant figure, then that's what he'll be like. 
However, if we think of God as forever blessed, as rejoicing and saving sinners, as delighting in His people, then that's what we'll become. We are sometimes suspicious of joy and happiness. And in all of this, we ignore the fact that part of what God wants to grow in us is joy. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love, and then what? Joy. It's part of it. Joy that leads to practical feelings of hope, of contentment, of happiness. The series that we're in leading up to Christmas morning is called What Christmas is All About. We're taking a page out of Linus's book from the Charlie Brown Christmas story. When Charlie Brown screams out, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? And Linus steps into the spotlight and says, I'll tell you, Charlie Brown, what Christmas is all about. And he quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. I want to look this morning at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, and then we're going to focus in particular on the second half of verse 10 and verse 11. Now, I'm going to read it this morning from the Holman Christian Standard. I'm going to preach it from the King James. All right, so really going to confuse you this morning, but I, I like for the sake of order this morning and organization for the sermon, I like the way that King James puts it, but I'm going to read it from the Holman because I think it's a little bit more readable in a public setting. In the same region, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, in the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today a Savior, who is Messiah or Christ, the Lord, has been born for you in the city of David. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was a multitude of the heavenly hosts with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. When the angel had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the feeding trough. After seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary was treasuring up all these things in her heart and meditating on them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard just as they had been told. In this series, we're focusing on the shepherds and their experience, both with the angels and then with Mary and Joseph, and then their return. And so what we've covered so far is what Christmas is all about, several different topics so far. Today, we're going to look at Christmas is all about great joy. The message of the angel to the shepherds first, as we saw last week, was fear not. Instead, behold, look, look at the good news, look at the gospel, look at Jesus. Take your eyes off your fear, look at him. This morning, it's good news, the angel says, of great joy. Now, good news is inherently joyful. Good news is good news. You ever had the choice? Which one do you want first, the bad news or the good news? I don't know. Give me the good news. Maybe the bad news won't be so bad. I'll be so excited about the good news. Or give me the bad news first, and then the good news will overwhelm. There's something about good news that we really, really like. It's no mistake that the the angel announces this good news. There have been various things of good news throughout the centuries in biblical history, but this is the ultimate good news. Good news indicates either a reversal of bad news or some news that now is breaking the silence, and that's sort of what was happening with the shepherds. It was the first news from God for centuries, and it was what Christmas was all about, great joy. I want to give you this morning three facts, three truths about joy. One of those, the middle one, we're going to stop and we're going to focus on for a little bit. We're going to work through Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. So just kind of leave some space there. I encourage you to take some notes. Not everything 
that I'm going to give you this morning will be on the outline. But the three facts, the three truths about joy will be. First of all, and this is just an overall biblical truth about joy, that joy is ruined by sin. Joy is ruined by sin. Like I said, it's that deep state of being contented and happy that's brought on by the Holy Spirit, developed by the Holy Spirit, that nothing and no one can change. But it is ruined, it is diminished, it is thrown away by sin. The Old Testament ended without God's glory among the people. He had departed. And and as the Old Testament story wraps up, the people are returning from their exile that God has imposed on them because of their sin. But it's hardly a triumphant return. It, it's, it's really sort of a piecemeal, some folks went back, some folks didn't. They, they rebuilt some walls. They, they tried to do some other work in some different places. And it wasn't exactly all that it was before. And God's subsequent silence for the next few centuries, three to four hundred years, offered them no joy. They weren't hearing from God in a prophetic way. There was no prophet to come and tell them, thus saith the Lord. And even though they had resented that for a long time, they still were hearing from God on a regular basis, and now they weren't. And so that that time between the Old Testament ending and the New Testament beginning was a time of no joy. It was a time of confusion for them. It was a time of rebellion. They rebelled against their government, and eventually they were oppressed by the Roman government. That's where the story kind of picks up in the New Testament. The Old Testament pattern had always been that God would bless the people. He would promise them more blessings. They would rebel and sin against him, and then God would bring judgment. And all of that, because of their ongoing sin, there was no real joy for the people that lasted. There's no joy when there is sin. Sin ruins everything it touches. You know that. You've seen it. Sin ruins relationships. Some of you are dealing with broken relationships today, and you can trace it back in every single case. Whether it was your fault or someone else's fault, there was sin that started the break. That's the way it went. Whether that was between you and your parents, you and a brother or sister, you and a spouse, you and a child, whatever it was, there was sin that got in the way of that relationship. Sin always ruins everything it touches. Sin also ruins your faith. Paul talked about those who have a have a love for money and a love for stuff and they pursue it and, and at, as a result they've shipwrecked their faith and they love the things of this world and they give themselves over to that and it shipwrecks, it ruins their faith. Some of you now are struggling with doubts about the Lord because of sin that's been in your life and you can't explain the correlation but I guarantee you that there is something in there that in some way, shape or form has crept into your life and it's because in some ways sin. Sin ruins our faith. Sin ruins our our peace. If you're a believer in Jesus, let me just tell you this. If somebody comes to me on your behalf, and I I hear, hey, you know what? I need you to to pray for Clint Gentry. That guy, he's just being a total knucklehead. He's our youth minister, so maybe that goes with the territory. I don't know, but man, he is, he's, you know what I'm going to pray for Clint? Because I believe Clint's a a believer in Jesus. I'm going to pray the Holy Spirit would absolutely crush him. No peace in his life. So, Clint, don't don't go down that road. That's what I'm going to pray for. You know why? Because there's something about joy being taken away, sin that ruins our peace. And maybe, just maybe, it's not that God's trying to get your attention through these different signs and so on, but when you have no peace in your life, when you have no joy in your life, maybe it's because you have run from the Lord. Not in every case, but you've run from the Lord and you've ruined it because of sin. Certainly we know that sin also ruins health. I had a grandfather whose, whose choices over the years and years and years and years took his life at age 67. He didn't kill himself willingly, but passively. 
just over time, he never decided to say, you know what, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's detrimental to me. You've seen people who have made sinful choices and their life was ended just like that. Or that they have taken someone else's life because of their sinful choices. Sin ruins everything it touches. It'll ruin your emotions as well, by the way. If you're a believer in Jesus, sin will make you a not nice person. It just will. It'll, it'll, it'll ruin it. It'll, it'll make you a negative, awful-to-be-with kind of person. Ultimately, sin just ruins your soul. I mean, just, it, it just ruins your soul. Now, that's not what the world's going to tell you. That's not a message you're going to hear on the news. It's not a message you're going to hear in self-help books. That the problem with you is sin. Not what you're going to hear. But the Bible is pretty clear that that's the problem. The world's going to tell you to go for whatever is immediate. You know, hey, whatever, whatever helps you to feel better in that moment, that's really what you should choose because the ultimate goal is to feel better and then as a result of feeling better, sort of be a good person and that's sort of the, the ultimate virtue. But really, that's not even sustainable because sin ruins joy. It always has and always will. For those who are not believers in Jesus, ignorantly, their sin, their sin of unbelief steals and ruins their joy because they're not receiving from the Lord what they could be receiving. And in believers... Our sin ruins the joy that God wants to grow in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's very dangerous not to have that kind of joy of the Lord. In that particular book, David Murray quoted a Puritan pastor named Richard Aileen. And, he, and he, he's an older pastor many from, from back uh, a century or so ago. And he said these words about the danger of lacking the joy of the Lord. He said the lack of these heavenly joys will dampen, if not destroy, love for God. This lack will cause people to have infrequent and unpleasant thoughts of God. This lack will cause people to use infrequent and unpleasant, spe unpleasant speech concerning God. This lack of joy will deprive people of all desire to serve God because they have no delight in Him or any sweet thoughts of heaven. This lack of joy threatens to pervert people's judgments concerning the ways of God. It is the lack of heavenly joy that, in God that causes people to entertain the delights of the flesh. The lack of heavenly joy will leave people under the power of every affliction and without divine comfort. The lack of joy will make people unwilling to die, for who would wish to go to God when he does not delight in him? This lack will lay people open to the power of every temptation. And the lack of heavenly joy is a dangerous preparative to total apostasy that is turning your back on you. Lacking joy that is stolen maybe by our sin is a danger to our souls. And it's often our sin that has ruined any joy we might have. But just like the people as the story of the New Testament opens, we can't do on our own anything about our sin. We can't bust ourselves out of it. You ever tried that? We're just going to do better. And then tomorrow, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll do better again. And every day is the same. We can't will ourselves to victory and we can't create our own goodness. The people in the Old Testament had failed over and over and over and over to live up to God's standard, and they couldn't do it, and there was no joy. And so there has to be another answer. Sin ruins joy. The answer that God gives is very clear in the New Testament, that joy is restored by Jesus. And this is where we look this morning at Luke chapter 2, just closely for a few minutes. Joy is restored by Jesus. If, if it's ruined by sin, it's restored by Jesus. Now, I want to give you, as we look at Luke chapter 2, and again, I told you we're going to focus on the end of verse 10 and all of verse 11. 
In that little space there you've got on your outline, I'm going to give you four ways that Jesus restores joy. But they're not going to appear on the screen. You're going to have to write them down. Pay attention. All right? Shake yourself out of it. It's a little warm in here right now. Shake yourself out. All right? Cobwebs. All right? It's like a commercial break. Wake up. Get your drink out. Take your sip of caffeine. And here we go. All right? Four ways that the good news brings great joy. Here's what the angel talks about. First, it's grace. In the King James, it says, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, or good tidings of great joy, which will be for all the people. And then he says in verse 11, For unto you, unto you, grace. Isaiah chapter 9 makes a prophecy about a light dawning on the world one day. When I was a kid, there was a street not far from our home in southwest Louisville that it seemed as if every house on the entire block would decorate for Christmas. And I'm talking about it was the street that you wanted to go to. You would drive up and down, and every home had all kinds of decorations, and their electric bill must have been out the roof. My dad was one kind of like me. He was just too cynical to put that stuff up. I ain't paying for all that for somebody else to look at when they drive by. You know, I'm not doing that. But... But these folks went all out. And I remember driving through there and riding with my parents. Oh, just so excited. Some of you do that today with your kids and your grandkids. Or maybe you still sort of have that starry-eyed kid look as you drive through Mike Miller Park. You drive through our park here in Murray. You go up and down the road and you look for different Christmas lights. We can't help but enjoy light like that. And Christmas lights, just like Isaiah prophesied that a light would dawn. Christmas lights that... They are not just decorative, they're symbolic. Because the world is dark. Isaiah knew this, and this is what he was prophesying about. The world is dark because of its evil and because of its ignorance. And nobody knows enough to fix it. Nobody knows the answers. Now, we've tried. When Isaiah was writing, it was the same situation as today. They were trying the same stuff that we do. We've tried to look to earthly and to human answers experts, to scholars, to scientists. Hey, tell us how to fix our problems. We know that we're in darkness. You can ask anybody. And I've told you this before. Even the most hardened atheist who says there is no God and you're stupid if you believe there is, we are on our own and when you die, you just die. Nothing else happens. Even that person knows that something's not quite right with the world that people do bad things. Even they would make judgments according to right and wrong. We all know that something is wrong with the world, that we live in darkness. But we believe, we believe that we can overcome it on our own. We think we're pretty smart. We think we're pretty slick. We've got some technology. We've got some science. And so, with all of our science and our innovation and our genius over the last few centuries, you know what we've created? Slavery. Wonderful invention. Ask the people who went there. We created a civil war, two world wars, the assassination of dozens of world leaders, the Holocaust, the murder of 60 million babies, uncontrollable greed, rampant divorce, growing depression, and a societal addiction to outrage and shame. Look how smart we are. All of our genius put together, and that's what we've created over the last few centuries. We know we need light, so we decorate every Christmas to light things up and to celebrate, in many cases, a light that we don't even know has dawned on us. Unto you, a light has dawned from Isaiah 9. 
that's a totally different message. It says that the world is dark, the world is hopeless, but it tells us that we can't do anything about it. If you get anything from the unto you message, understand that you and I cannot do anything about the darkness in the world. We cannot do anything about it. Now, before you say, well, hold on just a second. Didn't Jesus say that we are the light of the world? That's fine, but do you know who really is the light of the world? It ain't me, and it ain't you. It's him. Unto you, he says, you can try all you want, but you can't change your situation. You can try all you want, but you can't bring light into the world. Unto you, a light has dawned. It's a message that says, yes, things are dark and hopeless, and we can't do anything about it. We can't heal or save ourselves or, or do anything about our problems. It's a message that says the solution for all that stuff comes outside, from outside of humanity, from outside the world. And so this unto you is a message of grace. To an evil and ignorant and arrogant world, there's grace. Unto you, something has happened that is not of you, but is unto you. Don't miss the terminology. It's very important. What a different message from prevailing thought. And even, honestly, any other religion. Prevailing thought, most other religions are going to tell you, here's what you need to do to get to God. Do you know what Christianity tells you? you know what Jesus tells you? Here's what God has done to get to you. Here's what's been done for you, not what you need to do. That's the message of Christianity. And that is cause for great joy. Grace is receiving what we didn't deserve, what we couldn't earn, what we couldn't do on our own. And that's what Jesus has brought to us. His grace restores joy. second way that joy is restored by Jesus is because of his incarnation. Unto you, it says, is born. Not unto you has appeared in the sky. Unto you has sort of maybe been revealed through some stories that are passed down and some myths and legends and so on. Or, hey, here's a book a little bit to tell you about some things that have happened. No, unto you is born, the incarnation, God taking on the likeness of a person. Paul described it in Philippians 2 in those words, that he took on the likeness of men, that he left heaven, that he emptied himself, poured himself out. There are several reasons that God did this. There's a biblical scholar named Graham Cole, and I read his book this week and studied a little bit, and he lists several reasons. I'm not going to try to unpack it all. We don't have time, but it's really good stuff. I'll give you those, and then I'll give you the the scripture reference, but several reasons for the incarnation. One of those was to reveal God to humanity. Jesus talked about in John chapter 118 and John chapter 14, verses 7 through 11, that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus came to show us who God is. People say, well, I'm not sure I can understand God. You never read the Gospels. Never understood Jesus. Part of the reason that he came was to reveal God to humanity. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 tell us that Jesus came, the incarnation happened, so that we would have someone who stands before God on our behalf who understands what we deal with. Jesus took on humanity. He didn't give up his godness, but he took on, along with that, his humanity. So he was equally God and equally human, but because he was human, he understands us. And so he stands before God on our behalf as one who knows us. Jesus also came to give us a pattern for what human life is really to be about. Philippians 2 also mentions that Jesus, because he emptied himself, he he humbled himself, took on the nature of a servant. And that is the ultimate in humility, and that's the ultimate for humanity. 
Hebrews chapter 10 talks about that Jesus came to provide a substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. 1 John chapter 3 tells us in verse 8 that Jesus came, that he appeared, that God appeared here on earth in order to destroy demonic and evil powers. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 tells us that Jesus showed up to redeem those who were under the law. And because he didn't become an animal or an insect, but a human, a baby, born in reality, Jesus inherently shows us the value of human life. You want to know, does God value human life? He became a human. Yes, he does. And so anything less than God's value of human life is sinful and evil and abhorrent to the Lord. And that's what Jesus did. That's why he became a man. And so in his incarnation, Jesus identified with us, showing us that we're loved and understood, and not alone, but redeemed. He came alongside us to dwell with us, to travel with us, to take upon himself our sin. Unto you is born. That really matters. It matters that it really happened, and it is cause for great joy because God is not unaware, but he's sympathetic. God is not unloving, but he's compassionate. God is not unreachable, but available. And in Jesus, the incarnation proves all that. A third way that Jesus restores joy is by God's faithfulness. The King James goes on. It says, Unto you is born this day in the city of David. Do you realize that was a fulfillment of prophecy from the book of Micah? That Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, would be born in the city of David, in Bethlehem. God for centuries had been telling them, preparing them, making promises. We looked at this back over the summer in a series called I Promise. Here are the, here are the promises. At creation, God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Guess what? Jesus shows up and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am God. After the sin in the garden, the promise was, I will restore what sin has destroyed. What did Jesus do on the cross? He restored what sin had destroyed. After the flood, God's promise was, life goes on because I'm not finished with you yet. They thought, from the time the Old Testament history closed, they thought maybe God was done with them and entered Jesus. And God says emphatically, I'm not done with humanity. To Abraham, he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. He says, all nations will be blessed because of you. Guess who Jesus came for? Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile, those of all nations. When he gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, he was telling the people, you are mine and so I will live among you. What do we have in Jesus? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. To King David, he said, the best is yet to come. One day you'll have a ruler over the house of David whose throne will, will be established forever. Guess what? Jesus is what? The King of kings and the Lord of lords. His kingdom will have no end. And despite all the threats to the promise in the Old Testament, the promise over and over and over was there is hope beyond devastation. Jesus showed up and it says, here's good news of great joy for all the people. There's hope. And in Jesus, in that series, we saw his promises, I make and I will make all things new. And Paul told us that if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God has kept his promises. So be joyful. God is faithful. He proves it. Jesus being born in the city of David. And the fourth way that Jesus restores our joy is by his salvation. It says, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. 
so much packed into that one phrase here that the angel mentions. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And that's the heart of the good news. We get the bad news and the good news mixed together in the book of Romans. In fact, when I was a kid, I, I learned what became known to us as the Romans Road. Maybe you've heard this before. And how do you talk with people about what, who they are and what God has done for them? And we were taught, just you know, learn some of these verses and, and you'll understand. Here's, here's the way people are as they're created and here's what Jesus has done for them. Because in Romans chapter 3, we find out that everybody is sin. And everybody falls short of God's standard. So as a result, we all stand to be condemned by Him. And more than that, in Romans chapter 6, we learn that the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We learn in Romans chapter 5 that while we were still in our sin, dead in our sin, hateful to God, unbelieving, ignorant, evil people apart from the Lord, that even in that, while we were yet sinners, it says, Christ died for us. We learn in Romans chapter 10 that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For if you believe with your heart that Jesus, is, is, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved, it says. And so there's the good news all wrapped up into salvation. There is no greater cause for joy than our salvation. Picture, if you will, the worst case scenarios in your mind. Whatever it may be. What's the worst way that you would think would be to die? Drowning? Fire? Torture? Crucifixion? What are the the worst case scenarios that you say, well, I tell you what, I hope that somebody would get me out of that. What's the worst financial disaster that you can imagine? What's the worst relationship disaster that you can imagine? What are the worst case scenarios for you? And imagine that all of those things... From all of those things, you've been rescued. Every one of them. One after another, after another, after another. How joyous and happy would you be that someone got you out before you died? That someone bailed you out before you went under? That someone brought restoration to those relationships? And that's the joy of salvation. And infinitely more is the joy that is found in Jesus' salvation. Because the worst way to die isn't anything physically, but it's spiritually. And that is for all eternity to be separated from God Himself, punished forever for the unbelief in Jesus Christ. Jesus restores joy by His grace, His incarnation, His faithfulness, and His salvation. That's what's been done for us. But we know both by Scripture and experience that they prove that there's an ongoing component to retaining our joy from the Lord. And that's the last thing I want to give you this morning. Sin ruins joy, Jesus restores joy, and joy is retained by obedience. Did you guess the last word there? Did you guess it? They're all ours. Some of you may not be Southern Baptist, but that's really impressive. I tell you that all the time. It's, uh, it's impressive. I got three R's in there. The blanks were all the same in the outline. You had no idea what was coming next. Joy is retained by obedience. Do you know that some of the first words that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, when he starts listing what we know as the Beatitudes, do you know the word that he used 
the word blessed has the connotation of happiness. He says, if you want to be happy in my kingdom, here's what you need to do. Obey what I tell you. In Luke chapter 11, we get the connotation in, in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, that those who are the happiest are those who keep God's commands. Over and over and over and over and over again. Blessed are you if you do these things. Happy will you be if you follow what I tell you to do. There's something about being obedient to the Lord that brings joy. David Murray in his book, and I'll, I'll close with this. David Murray says this, For many people, the existence of God's laws is proof that he opposes human happiness. If God really wanted me to be happy, he wouldn't put all these laws in my way. Thus, every day, billions of people try to throw off God's law, cast it behind their backs, and run away from it as fast as possible. What they don't realize is that instead of escaping hardship, they are escaping happiness. Here are four reasons, he says, why we should trust and obey God's laws as designed for our happiness. Number one, God knows us. As our creator, he knows what is best for us in our bodies, minds, relationships, lifestyle, communities, and so on. He has observed billions of human lives over the years and knows what works well and what doesn't. Number two, God knows our world. He knows the dangers of this world better than we do, and he has designed his laws as boundaries as fences to keep us in safe places and away from the danger zones. He knows what damages and what destroys us. Number three, God knows the future. When men change God's law, they cannot foresee the consequences. If politicians could look down the road and see all the implications of their legislation, they would, all, they would often change their plans. God sees down the road and views all the possible consequences and therefore has never had to change one of his moral laws. Isn't that interesting? Finally, he says, God knows the gospel. God also designed the law to show us our sin and our need of a Savior. The law not only shows us the best way to live, but also that we cannot live that life, that we need someone who did, and that we need the Holy Spirit to fuel our obedience. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So what do you do now? You flip that sheet over that you've got there for your outline. Just give you a little something that maybe will help you this week. A little sermon rewind. Something to think about. You see the questions there. I would encourage you to take this. It's nothing spectacular. It's nothing profound. But encourage you to take this and focus on what sin is it, Lord, that I need to repent of that's ruining my joy. Lord, how is it that I need to meditate on what Jesus has done and who he is so that my joy can be restored? And Lord, how is it that I need to live in obedience so that my joy can be retained this week? In all that I do, in every situation, wherever I am, Lord, how is it that I need to repent? How is it I need to meditate on Jesus? How is it that I need to live in obedience? Maybe you'll take that sheet and you just work through it this week. Take one each day. We'll go through it each time, each day. Repent of sin. Meditate on Jesus and live in obedience. Sin ruins joy. Jesus restores joy and obedience retains joy. It's good news of great joy. That's what Christmas is all about so that we might have that deep state 
of contentment and happiness brought on and developed by the Holy Spirit that nothing and no one can change. Let's pray. There may be a specific response that you need to have this morning. We don't typically have a lot of folks who will get up and come forward and talk to me or to pray here and all of that, and that's okay. But I want you to know that's always.